Good morning. Let me say, he is risen. And then you shout from living rooms or kitchens or wherever you are, dens, if you're watching this outside, wherever you are, I'll say, he is risen. You say, he is risen indeed. Let me hear you. You ready? He is risen. Amen. He's risen indeed. Well, this is an Easter, it goes without saying, this is an Easter that is unlike any Easter uh, we've ever known in our lifetime. It is not being melodramatic to say that this is an Easter in the midst of death. It's not being dramatic, it's just facts. We're in a global pandemic, we see the news and we're surrounded by death and fear. And yet today, churches are boldly proclaiming all around the world that Easter is more than a match for everything that's coming against us. I've taken as a text Acts chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Acts. We're just going to look at a couple verses. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 22. Acts 2.22. You know that I always like to give credit where credit is due. Uh, the ideas for my points for this message came from a pastor, uh, a former pastor, Reverend Tim Keller, who was pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City for many, many years. And so I want to uh, acknowledge that his message uh, formed a lot of my thinking about this message. And if you want to Google that and watch that, I always recommend uh, uh, Tim Keller, great preacher. Acts 2. Verse, starting in verse 22. Are you there? This is actually the first, uh, I guess you could say the first Easter message ever preached. This is a resurrection sermon. It's actually the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. The day, they, they like to say that the birthday of the church, the day the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter preaches this message and he unpacks the resurrection in this message. So in a way, this is like the text of the first Easter sermon. It goes like this, Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Peter's preaching and he gets to this part of the sermon. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Now, what is he saying? He, he's talking to people ethnically Jewish. They're saying, look, you, you can't doubt that he, this man, Jesus, had the hand of God on him. He did these miracles. He did these signs and wonders. And there's no doubting that. You, you know that. Verse 23, what happened to him? Well, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, in this passage, we see three things. And if you're a note taker, these will be the three headings for our three points. In this passage, in just these short verses, we see a hidden plan, a broken power, and a true champion. Again, a hidden plan, a broken power, and a true champion. Let's take them one at a time. First, a hidden plan. Anytime there's massive suffering, I hear this a lot as a, a preacher, maybe I'm more uh, 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 people feel more comfortable telling me this, it, but I'm sure that if you have friends uh, that, that think this way, they, they've shared it, you'll, you'll hear a couple things. You'll hear stuff like this. You'll hear, where was God? Hmm? Where was God? In times of a pandemic, the coronavirus, where was God when all this going on? Or you'll hear this, why has God done this? Why has God 
you know, done this thing. Those each assume a model. They both assume a very particular model about how God relates to the world. For the people who say, where was God? It assumes a kind of model where, where God is sort of asleep at the wheel. All this stuff is going on and all this stuff's affecting humans and God just sort of doesn't know about it. He's oblivious. And that's one model. He's absent. But, but the humans are sort of left to, to run things themselves. The other, why has God done this, assumes a different model. That assumes sort of the God as puppet master. God is like a moving chess pieces around on the board and we're all just pawns in his game. He does everything. It doesn't matter what humans do. He's sort of a puppet master and your free choices and your free will don't matter at all he just sort of does everything but that's neither one of those models is what you have in this verse look back to verse 23 it's it's neither one of those verse 23 says this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge you see that okay so that sounds like what that sounds like okay God is a, a puppet master right I mean apparently Jesus went to the cross but it was all part of God's purpose and foreknowledge that he was he was handed over so so God, it sounds like God's controlling everything and then right after that and you with the help of wicked men you put him to death by nailing him to the cross okay well that sounds like it, it's all up to the humans so the verse is saying on the one hand uh, uh, this was God's set foreknowledge it was his purpose that Jesus came and died on the cross, and on the other hand, everyone who did it is evil, completely responsible for their actions. Isn't that something? The Bible doesn't say it's either or. It's not all God and human choices don't matter, and it's not all human choices and God's just oblivious. No. No. (laughs) Take 9-11, for example, the great tragedy of 9-11. 9-11 happened because of the wicked actions of evil human beings. Uh, uh, every evil right evil happens because of human action and yet and yet beyond what anyone can see and yet and we need to hear this God is on the throne there is always always a hidden plan of God the most obvious example of course is the cross imagine being there on Good Friday looking up at the cross and you see the the bloodied mangled body of Jesus Christ and you think there is no good that can come from this evil here's the righteous one having been crucified nothing can redeem this nothing can redeem this radical evil the one with full justice and total love here he is stretched out on a cross dying at the hands of evil men there's nothing that can redeem this and then of course what happens If you'd been a disciple and you'd been looking at that cross saying, there is nothing that can redeem this on Easter Sunday morning, he's risen from the dead and you realize this was God's plan all along. There was a hidden plan and you realize what we should have said on Good Friday is not there's nothing that can redeem this. What we should have said is there's nothing that I can currently conceive of that can redeem this. And that, that right there, that makes all the difference in the world. There's a big difference in saying there's nothing that can redeem this and there's nothing that a human mind can conceive of that can redeem this. Because God always has a hidden plan. I, I don't want to in any way make light of suffering. That doesn't mean that all suffering goes away. That doesn't mean that if you're suffering somehow, uh, uh, you, your suffering goes away to know that there's a hidden plan. I'm not trying to say that. In fact, one of the great tragedies of the many great tragedies of this COVID-19 is that there's a lot of people who are suffering and it has nothing to do with the virus. They're going through 
suffering and grief and pain that they would have gone through without. And so there's a lot of people that are hurting. If that's you right now, if you're going through a time of suffering right now, I want to speak a word to you personally. Because I know what you're thinking. You, you want answers. You want to know, what is it? Why am I going through this? Listen. When it comes to the cross, we get a whole book explaining the suffering of the cross. This whole book, this Bible makes sense of the agony of the cross. It, 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 it's sort of an answer. It helps us understand the, the resurrection and all the, the things that come before and after. What am I saying? With your suffering, we don't yet have that book. We don't yet have that answer. But what this means is because of this book, because of the cross, we can trust that just like God redeemed that great tragedy, God will redeem whatever you're going through. Elizabeth Elliot tells a story of visiting a sheep farm in England. And uh, there she was watching this shepherd who had these sheep and he was, uh, uh, there was a, a disease going around affecting sheep. And so the only way to prevent it, you had to dunk this sheep entirely, bodily dunk. I guess he was baptizing sheep, I guess. But he's dunking these sheep into this vat of antiseptic and holding them down. And apparently the, the disinfectant or the antiseptic or whatever had to work into their wool and into their skin. So he has to hold them down completely underwater, plunge them down under, and violently he'd plunge another one down, hold it under it. Elizabeth Elliot makes the comment, what, what are the sheep thinking? I mean, these poor sheep are thinking, this shepherd is drowning me. This shepherd who I trusted, who I thought was always beneficent, is now holding me underwater and drowning me. The sheep can't obviously see that in fact the shepherd is not harming him. He's doing just the opposite. He's preventing them from experiencing harm. He's saving them. But it sure feels like they're being drowned. Elizabeth Elliot makes this very prescient comment. She says, oh, I know. I, too, have a good shepherd like that. Elizabeth Elliot, who was no stranger to pain, knew that sometimes what she was seeing was not, in fact, the whole story, but that God had a hidden plan. It's a hidden plan, but secondly, these verses speak of a broken power. The hidden plan, the broken power. Look at verse 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death could not keep its hold on Jesus. This word uh, hold means just that, it, it grip, strength. The grip has been broken. The strength has been broken. Imagine bands that have been cut, the bands are now open and harmless. He loosed the pangs of death. Let us not forget this morning that celebrating Easter is celebrating the greatest victory over the greatest enemy. He loosed the pangs of death. One of my favorite Easter hymns, that Christ arose. Uh, it's got that famous chorus, up from the grave he arose. And maybe, maybe you know it. Do you remember the second verse? Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. That hymn writer, you see, is picking up on this image that death is defeated. The strength, the grip of death has been broken. Now that sounds really cool, and that's stuff that preachers love to preach. And when people hear it, they love to say amen, to say death is defeated. And that sounds cool, but what does it mean? It's one of those church phrases like Easter means victory over death. Great, but, but, but what does that mean? 
It's impossible for death to keep his hold on him. That's true, and it's true in at least two ways. Let's unpack that. What does it mean death could not hold him? It's true objectively, and it's true subjectively. First, objectively, death has lost its power. Here's, let's unpack what that means when we say death has lost its power. Death had no right over Jesus because Jesus had fully paid the penalty on the cross for sin. See, the Bible says the weight, follow me, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, when the Bible speaks about death, it means one, one of three things and sometimes all three. The Bible talks about death, it does mean physical death, and that's what we most often think of when we think of death. But when the Bible speaks of death, it also means spiritual death. What is spiritual death? Spiritual death is separation from God. God is the source of all life, so to be cut off from God, spiritually dead. You may be physically alive, but spiritually dead. So there's physical death, spiritual death, and then the Bible speaks of the second death, the eternal death, and that's eternal separation from God. Well, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the penalty for sin is death. At the cross, Jesus paid in full that sin debt. It's paid. The debt has been paid. So death loses his claim over Jesus. Uh, illustration, imagine you're convicted of a crime, and that crime carries a sentence of two years in prison. Well, during those two years in prison, the prison has a hold on you, a rightful hold on you. You've committed the crime, and the sentence is those two years in prison. The prison has a hold on you. But on midnight, on the third year, once those two years are paid, once that prison debt is paid, at midnight, the minute the clock strikes midnight, on the third year, the debt's been paid and that prison no longer has a hold on you. You can bust out the doors of that prison. And here the imagery here is that Jesus, having fully paid the debt, busts out the penalty for sin, death and hell, that prison, he bursts forth and everyone who's in Christ shares in that victory. Because he paid our penalty, death has no claim on us. The wages have already been paid. That's why we say objectively the death of Christ has meant the death of death. But it's more than just the objective breaking of the pains of death. There's more to it. He, he breaks death's power subjectively. What do I mean by that? One way death keeps its hold on us is by constantly in the back of our mind reminding us death is coming and the fear of death. And the fear of death has been broken. I've been reading uh, in preparation for today some secular accounts of funerals and um, uh, a particularly one article, just kind of one Google led to another, led to another search. And eventually I read these articles about atheists talking about death in the afterlife. One of the best was an article in the Atlantic where they asked without any uh, any judgment or any bias, they just ask, would you write in, anyone who's atheistic, would you write in about your thoughts on life, after, on, on what happens after we die and how you feel about that? Those two things, what are your thoughts and how you feel? Uh, they were fascinating. Most common was something like this, and I'll just read this quote, but it's representative. Most folks wrote in something like this. These are atheistic people, what happens uh, after we die? I've always felt, quote, I've always felt that when I die, I'm dead and gone, my conscious life will end, my interactions with others will end, and I'll simply be, all capital letters here, gone. I don't care what causes consciousness, I don't, but I expect that it will end. My afterlife will be in the memories of those I knew, those who love me, those who carry me on in their hearts, but I myself will cease to exist. That was very typical. Uh, another wrote, how do I feel about it? Meh. I accepted my mortality a long time ago. I dealt with it, and now I rarely give it a thought. It seems a little cavalier. One person acknowledged that it's a little cavalier, and so uh, uh, 
this person wrote, I recognize that some people can't shrug off the idea of not existing in some form. Take my husband, for instance. He has an overdeveloped fear of oblivion, but can't bring himself to believe in fairy tales, so he takes comfort in philosophy. I wanted to say, all due respect, but overdeveloped fear of oblivion? I don't think that's overdeveloped. I think that's called being human, and here's why I say that. Almost every one of these quotes, they concluded with, therefore, this is what they always come back to, this gives me, and here's a direct quote, this gives me a beautiful, shockingly beautiful sense of the now, being in the present, here and now, the ultimate reward of life. People talk about the beauty of life, the specialness of life, and that's where I want to call a foul. That's where I want to say you're being intellectually inconsistent. That's the point. How is it that you can say life is so special and we feel that somehow we're special in the universe and say that after we die, that's it, oblivion, like every other beast of the field? Your own thinking is giving you away. You realize God has put eternity in the hearts of men and that there is something more than just oblivion. Contrast that kind of thinking that when we die, that's it, nothing happens. Contrast that with the gospel. The gospel takes away this fear of death. Look look at the, the, the poet George Herbert, his great line, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made death a gardener. Death used to be an executioner, right? That's it. If you're a secular person, that's it. Consciousness gone. If you're a moralistic person, that's it. If you've done enough good deeds, I guess you go to heaven. And if not, you can never be sure. Maybe you'll go to hell. If, that, if, if moralism is, but the gospel, the gospel makes death from an executioner now a gardener. <laughs> In other words, all death can do is bury you. In other words, all death can do is plant you, Christian. Like a gardener plants a a seed of a flower to bloom into what it was ultimately created to be. Like an acorn is planted to one day blossom into a towering beautiful oak tree to become more fully what you were always meant to be. Death has gone from being an executioner to a gardener because of the gospel. We've been freed. Hebrews 2 says we've been freed by Jesus. Those of us who all our lives were held in slavery by the fear of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Last. So the power's been broken. There's a hidden plan, a broken power. Why is all this possible? Because of our true champion. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Hebrews 2, again, that passage, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. That word pioneer can also mean champion. Jesus was our champion. Death's power has been broken by our champion. If we don't know how a war fought by champion works, think back to a Bible story many of you learned when you were a little kid. The best example of war by champion goes back to David and Goliath. See, when David fought Goliath, they were representatives. The armies of Israel were facing the armies of the Philistines. And instead of army facing army in individual uh, combat and, and, and like, like, like big armies, instead they selected their champion, Goliath, and the Israelites, through the providence of God, finally selected David as their champion. And the battle plan was really simple. If, if the Philistine champion wins, then that victory is imputed to the entire army. If the Israelite champion wins, then that victory is imputed to all of God's people. And likewise, the penalties are the same. If, if our champion loses, we become slaves forever for this opposing army. It was battle by champion. And we, of course, know 
that Jesus came to be the true and better David. Just like David's victory over the Philistines was imputed to the entire army, Jesus' victory over death is imputed to all of us. Our champion has won. Now, when he went into the grave, there was a great battle. Make no mistake, death tried to hold him, but he broke the bonds of death. He loosed the pangs of death. And our true champion, when he burst forth from the grave, he won for us a victory because he's the true champion. And now death is but a gardener. As a pastor, I've sometimes been with people at the end of their lives. Many of them uh, I've had the chance to be with and they know the gospel and the gospel promises are so sweet to their soul. Others uh, I believe have not known the gospel. And so they say things as they get near what they believe the end of their life. They say things like, I hope I've done enough good things or I don't know if I've done enough. And that shows they don't know the gospel. The gospel's not a matter of, I hope I've done enough good things. I can tell you that, you haven't. And neither have I. But our salvation because of the gospel is not based on the good things we've done. Our salvation is based on the obedience of the risen Lord Jesus. And so there's no, well, I hope it's, I know. You say, well, how do you know? Because my champion, my victory comes from my champion, not what I've done. All glory and praise to my champion, Jesus. You say, but how do you know Jesus lived a good enough life? The resurrection, that's how. His, his life was viewed as approved by God because God raised him from the dead. The resurrection vindicates the obedience of our champion, Jesus Christ. And that's why when we come to the pangs of death, we need not fear because we know we're in Christ. That's why Paul in the New Testament taunts death. He says, oh death, where's your victory? Oh hell, where's your sting? Because Christ has risen. In closing, there is a video that's gone viral. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to Google it and look it up. It is, it's the funeral of Miss Lois Evans. Uh, Lois Evans was the wife uh, of Dr. Tony Evans, and passed away recently. Tony Evans, the famous preacher in Dallas. Um, uh, this beloved woman of God, and uh, uh, there's a video that's gone viral of Jonathan Evans, Dr. Tony and, and Lois's son. He's given the eulogy at her funeral. And if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to Google it. Uh, but he, his mother died of cancer, and he was praying. They were all praying for Miss Lois to be healed from the cancer. And he said that as he was praying, he was praying for his mom in the months before she died, praying for this healing and praying specifically for this victory and he said the Lord confronted him and Jonathan Evans in this speech he, he says that the Lord uh, uh, sort of mildly gently rebuked him because he said you don't understand my victory he said that God told him victory is mine and because Lois Evans is my child I've given her my victory and he said I know you're praying for healing but in the end there can be only one of two answers to your prayer for healing. Either she's gonna be healed, or she's gonna be healed. Either she's gonna live, or she's gonna live. Either she's gonna be with family and friends, or she's gonna be with family and friends. Either she's gonna be well taken care of, or she's gonna be well taken care of. Because victory is mine, saith the Lord. That's our Easter hope this morning. That's true of every blood-bought, born-again child of God. That is truth you need to hear. Whatever happens in the face of this pandemic, one of two things, either you're going to live or you're going to live.
Either you're going to be okay or you're going to be okay. Either you're going to live or you're going to live. Because of Easter, because of the hidden plan, because of the broken power, and because of our true champion, the risen Lord Jesus. The death of Christ means the death of death. Let us pray. Oh God, plant this truth deep in our soul today. Give us fresh encouragement to not only encourage we who are your children to know that we're either gonna live, or as Jonathan Evans says, we're gonna live or we're gonna live. God, we need to hear that, but I also pray for those who don't yet know this good news, that today would be the day they receive the gospel. Today would be the day they receive you, Jesus. That they, that they don't have to be like these who, who try to deny death or, or try to stop thinking about what's, what's gonna happen and just focus on the now, but that rather we can say with George Herbert that death has gone from being an executioner to a gardener. That we can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. That we can say with full confidence, whatever happens, we're gonna be taken care of or we're gonna be taken care of. We're gonna be with family or we're gonna be with family. We're gonna live or we're gonna live. God, put that deep in our hearts this morning and let us share that good news far and wide. Tell the world that you are risen and that you offer salvation today full and free. We pray this in the matchless name of our true champion, Jesus. Once again, as we've done the past few Sundays, we want to make available anyone who's uh, heard this message on Sunday morning, April 12, 2020. If you're watching this message, here's a phone number you can call. It's just our church number. We've got some ministers who are by the phone right now that are ready to receive your call. If you need to pray with somebody or you need to, to reach out or maybe you've, you, need, you know you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let today be that day. I hope that no matter what, you'll text somebody immediately after the service. You'll text somebody that he is risen, that you'll uh, share this good news, that you'll remind somebody this week that needs to hear, hey, we're either going to live or we're going to live. That you'll share this good news far and wide. I pray you have a blessed resurrection day. I know that this day is unlike uh, any other Easter's we've had, certainly any other Easter's I've had, but I pray God richly blesses you and pours out his spirit in a fresh way today. I'd like you to stand wherever you are for our benediction. It's gonna come from Hebrews, 13th chapter. Wherever you are, please stand to your feet. Hebrews 13, this will serve as our benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen and amen.